Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast in collaboration with the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about the Conservative Yeshiva, please visit conservativeyeshiva.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Shalom. This is Rabbi Joshua Heller, and welcome to Daily Daf Differently. We're in the home stretch of Tractate Yevamot, and today we're studying Daf Kuf Yud Zayin, page 117. We are still very much in the question of missing presumed dead, and who is believed to testify that a woman's husband is deceased so that she is allowed to remarry. Now, there's a lot of thought-provoking material here, much of it centered around the presumed intention of the one offering that testimony. One key idea starts in a Mishnah, which actually begins on the previous staff. If a woman comes before the court declaring that her husband has died, can they draw any conclusions about her motivation based on the way she tells them her story? Now, we've seen over the course of this chapter that the sages were very lenient in the rules of testimony regarding the death of a husband in order to allow a woman to remarry rather than have her be an aguna, changed to a husband whose death was not well corroborated. But what if her motivation seemed to be nefarious or seemed to be related to financial matters rather than her actual status? Beit Shammai, the school of Shammai, says that when a woman is sole witness to her husband's death, she may testify to that and remarry on that basis, and when she does, she will also collect the financial death benefit that's specified in the Ketubah. Beit Hillel at first disagrees and says that yes, she can remarry, but she's not able to collect that death benefit mentioned in the Ketubah since she's an otherwise invalid witness. She is believed for the purpose of preventing an aguna but she is still not considered a valid witness, according to Beit Hillel, in financial matters. In other words, she can testify that her husband is dead to marry someone else, but not to receive her insurance payment. Now, by the way, in a shocking move, Beit Shammai actually win this one. They actually convince Beit Hillel. That never happens. Now, the argument that works is based on a technical interpretation of the language of the Ketubah, in fact, based on language that's not really even found in our standard Ketubah today. What's more surprising is the argument that is brought first that doesn't work. The argument that's made is, if you're going to believe her in a matter involving adultery, which is very serious, a capital offense, then surely you should believe her over a matter that is purely financial. But in fact, we know from other cases that that is not true. That the rabbis made an exception to prevent a woman from becoming an aguna, but did not extend that to other kinds of testimony. Perhaps the assumption is that a woman would not lie about so something so serious as adultery, but might be tempted to bend the truth for financial gain. Now in the Gemara, Rav Nachman takes this issue even further and wrestles much more directly with this question of motivation. He says if a woman comes and says, my husband died, let me remarry, you believe her and give her her ketubah, her death settlement. But if she says, my husband died, give him my ketubah, give me that death payment. But in fact, 
She gets nothing. She can't remarry either. I can almost imagine hearing Willy Wonka, You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. Now, Rav Nachman's assumption is that if a woman is going to remarry, her intentions are pure. However, if the first thing she mentions is the money, and only then does she get around to worrying about her marital status, then perhaps her intentions are less than honest. So Maimonides suggests that perhaps she knows that her husband is alive and has no intention of committing adultery and remarrying. She simply wants to extract money from his assets in his absence, and this is the best way to do it. Of course, whenever we study a text like this, we must acknowledge that it reflects a power that the male sages seek to hold over women's lives and freedom. But we can also take it out of that context. Often, even today, we see clues to motivation when a person under stress asks a question which is different from the one that we were expecting. So on the surface, it would seem elementary. If the police respond to a missing persons report and the spouse of that missing person is primarily interested in finding out how they can collect on the life insurance or how those stains are ever going to come out of the carpet, you don't need Benedict Cumberbatch and Lucy Liu to conclude that there maybe have been some sort of chicanery. You could also look at the movie and the book Gone Girl to see some of these same ideas subverted. When someone is thought to be missing, are they really missing? And who is at fault? Now, there are some other interesting discussions on this daf. Won't get into all of them, but I'll just mention one. So, for instance, we begin a discussion that will continue tomorrow about other women who are specifically not believed to testify that one of their relatives' husbands has died. The concern is that they will testify falsely about the death of that husband, even though that husband happens to be their own son or father or stepfather. Who would do such a thing? And the answer is, out of spite, to break up the marriage to a hated daughter-in-law or stepmother, or perhaps for financial gain, to keep assets out of the hands of the widow. There's a fascinating psychological side point here. There are some other women who are mentioned in another Baraita, but not in our Mishnah where it would seem that they have no financial motivation. In fact, it is the person that they would be testifying to harm who would have a motivation against them. However, the sages made a remarkable statement, based on Proverbs, that a person's face is reflective like water. When someone dislikes you and you know it, you are likely to reflect that feeling back to them and to dislike them in turn, even though otherwise you might have no personal motivation to do so. So the psychology of loss and family is complicated, and we will see tomorrow just how far the rabbis thought someone might be willing to go to make a case. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the open and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epic Horus album One Bead available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.